out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of a book publication that has just come out, which is going to be titled... This is the end of 2022, by the way. Um, the book is titled We Peaked at Paper, an oral history of British zines. That's been put together by two people, Gavin Hogg and Amish Ironside. This has come out on the publish, uh, the publisher is Boat Whistle Books, and um, it features 20 chapters with 20 in-depth interviews with current and former editors of zines. From the decades, it's a brilliantly put together publication and um, you are going to love it. So do check out a copy or just buy one. So look, after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was, yeah, basically what is a zine. Um, And I do believe it's going to be Hamish who starts because he mentions Gavin. I know, they call me Sherlock Holmes. Anyway, this is going to be Hey hey, Hamish, take it away. Yeah, well, we, um, Gavin and I both did fanzines in the early 90s and uh, they were music fanzines as a lot of probably the largest number of fanzines were and uh, you pretty quickly sort of if you're very into fanzines you get to find out there's a history going back to punk when a lot of them started and uh, I think when we sort of first started talking about doing the book that was what we were looking at as a starting point but actually when you sort of then look into it further there's a there's a prehistory, if you like, going back to the 1930s, where there were uh, fanzines about science fiction. Right. So our book starts with one chapter devoted to that, which is looking at the sort of science fiction fanzines and also the technology they used to um, to produce them. And then uh, we jump ahead to uh, punk and sniffing glue, which is a probably the most legendary British fanzine of all. And then we, uh, that's chapter two, interview with uh, Mark Perry, who edited Snip and Glue. And then we sort of cover the, the history from 1976 onwards, uh, right up to the present day. Yes, absolutely. So what was it about punk that made fanzines suddenly come to be in kind of made for one thing and, and kind of the other Thing was that the, the music press at that stage was very sort of popular so it wasn't like um yes we had probably at that stage you know melody maker sounds enemy and various other magazines as well so why did anybody feel the fanzine was necessary during the, the years of 76 77 i think it was really because a lot of that stuff wasn't getting covered initially so from uh, from my understanding when punk first happened uh and it was kind of a a little explosion, you know, in, uh, I guess, kind of centred around the scene in London at the time. Things weren't really getting covered as they were later, and I think it was really the music press then reacting to the popularity of fanzines. And also, I think there's an element of fanzines kind of creating a bit of a scene as well, and and kind of music and the fanzines feeding off each other a little bit and kind of growing in a little Petri dish on their own before it gets discovered. Yes. And did you find doing the book... Um, that when Mark Perry, with Sniffing Clue especially, when he started, did he have any idea that it was was going to be something that was going to be probably sold on eBay for lots of money and there was going to be any longevity to it? Well, you know, the person who, <clears throat> the people who started fanzines, 
Was it was there a, sort of any idea that it was um, going to last as long as it has? No, absolutely not. I mean, if uh, if he had any idea about that, he certainly would have kept a few copies for himself. <clears throat> he hasn't even got a complete run of. Uh, I don't think he's got any issues, original issues of Sleeping Blue now. Um, but um, you know what what comes out in the the, the interview is that he you know, there's a sort of look, a fanzine look, but he wasn't sort of trying to make it look amateurish. He was doing as professional a, a job as he could do. But he was a, a sort of 16-year-old who, you know, left school at 16, working in a bank at that time, just loved music and just put it together, sort of just with that sort of passion for it. That This is why I think uh, the other thing about why it happened at the time of punk the, the music of punk was um, really about people feeling like you don't have to be at a certain standard on an in instrument uh, to be able to form a band, you know, and you don't even have to be able to play an instrument at all. You can just pick one up and uh, and see what happens. And yes. and and that's certainly um, fanzines are certainly a sort of um, printed equivalent of that. I think. Yeah, that's quite interesting because I come from the East Anglian region and during the very early 70s, there was a kind of a bit of a hippie movement and counterculture movement that started. And there were the Barsham, they called them the Barsham Fairs, and then they sort of had about five or six of them until about 76. And then they became the Albion Fairs and everything went terribly well until about the mid 80s. And then they had issues, mostly with the travellers and convoy. But that's another story. But within that movement, they created something called the Waveney Clarion, which was a very sort of, uh, I think it was a A4 paper. And um, and again, it's very basic. You know, when you look at it, you know, they didn't have great, they didn't have computers particularly. So the design of it is quite rustic. And, and you know, it was made with lots of love. But they they created it and made it and, and did it as a sort of, I think, monthly or bi-monthly, mainly because the, the mainstream press were not interested in anything to do with the counterculture at the time and the hippie movement that um, was starting mm. to flourish in the early 70s. So I guess it's a very similar thing of people wanting to sort of put their message across that felt that nobody was going to be interested in writing about it. Yeah, I think there's also a thing about accessibility as well. When I was talking to um, Mick Middles, who uh, did a, a zine with a friend called um, Gust Up around Manchester, and it was kind of in the immediate aftermath of Sniffing Glue, and he talks about just being in a bar and seeing members of Buzzcocks or you know, other Manchester bands. And that in the past, when the music press were interviewing members of Emerson, Lake and Palmer or 10CC or, you know, Wings or whatever, it was all very, it was another world and it was a million miles away. But because now the people that were making music were drinking in the same pubs as them and were part of the same scene, then uh, it was just a lot easier to be able to speak to them and, yes, and interview absolutely. them. So. I know. I think Emerson, Lake and Palmer even had someone who just carried the Persian rug around, didn't they, for one of the members to stand on, which was nice. It must have been a great job to get, actually. But <laughs> So in those early days, how did people put their fanzines together? This is the other thing, because, because in those, yes, it would have been a totally different technology, wouldn't it, if technology is such a thing? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, by then, that was around the time that uh, photocopiers were, you know, becoming... Uh, fairly common, but actually it's quite interesting because um, for the science fiction fanzines, uh, the best the best machine for producing was the Gestetner duplicator, and 
And um, that really, you know, the, the photocopier kind of um, killed off the Gestetna to some extent because the photocopier is a lot easier. But, um, yeah, you could have used a Gestetna, which, um, which I think uh, is a lovely piece of technology. Um, I'm actually hoping to try and reproduce a, a new fanzine using a Gestetna <laughs> and just to see if it can be done in the uh, in the 21st century. Um, but, um, yeah, photocopiers and also there were some print shops like LIFO printing, like a high street printer, really. But they were quite expensive. So, um, but as I say, our first chapter of the book about the science fiction zines um, really goes into a lot of detail about this because there were other things. If you if you couldn't get a Gestetna, which were fairly expensive, there were cheaper technologies, and you know all these things dictated how many you could do because some of the technologies were only viable for say running off uh, up to about a hundred copies. And yes. then there were others where you might not even be able to do 100 copies. And I could imagine, and I guess you would have that experience if you were doing photocopies in the early 90s, the, the photocopy machine would start to melt, wouldn't it? It would start to overheat with a bit of excitement. And then you got the cartridge kind of spewing black ink everywhere all over your hands and legs and stuff well, like yeah, that. Well, yeah, actually, it's not, it's not all that cheap, actually, photocopying. I mean, it's a good one for very low runs. But again, if you want to do more than 100 or 200, you probably would go to a printer. Me and Gavin both used one in Catford, uh, Catford Copy Centre. And it's quite interesting. You, you sort of hear about, like, through all the different phases of waves of fanzines, um, like in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, I think they all used a a printer called Better Badges, and um, they sold them in the rough trade shop. And uh, you know, you hear about this, and they all have a similar sort of look from the same sort of time. I think probably because you know they're all using the same printer. Yes, absolutely. And then just going forward from the punk period, you know, seventy nine Thatcher gets in. We suddenly have a conservative government, and then the, the early eighties there was the sort of the Falkland War. There was the miners' strike. Green in common, huge amounts of unemployment, and and for me, what I've noticed with the music, especially the indie scene, is that there's a lot of unemployment, and there's things like the Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance schemes. So a lot of people at that stage just in a sense of boredom, but wanting to do something, either go into a band, being in a band, or writing a fan scene. So did that also? you know make people sort of much more creative and and start sort of doing things for themselves during the early 80s phase yeah i think i think it did one of the themes that kind of comes out in the book a little bit sometimes is being a fanzine editor almost being a chance to reinvent yourself and quite a few of the people that we speak to kind of like a like it being in a punk band would have done you kind of get a new second name so there's um, a blaze fanzine which was a a really big zine uh sort of from the late 80s through uh into the mid 90s and karen was karen ablaze and you know it was a chance i think it's a chance really to if you if you're not particularly musical or you don't want to stand up and be in a band to to get a bit of that action and, and get closer to the music uh and yeah like i say almost kind of be a new person we also talked about how it can give you a lot of confidence as well sometimes some of the zine editors we spoke to who were quite maybe quite shy and introspective people but give them a fanzine to edit and they suddenly start you know hammering on doors to speak to bands or ringing up tour managers yes 
So it's that it's that chance of you know a, a new type of self expression that you can have. Yes, because I did, you know, because I just was mentioning just before this, um, you know, reading James Brown, the his latest book, Animal House, because the first half is about his childhood, but also the 80s. And he starts as a fanzine writer, doesn't he? And then there's yeah. little clips and little bits. There was another book called Rip, Torn and Cut and Claire, who went on to form Sarah Records. She was in a in a sort of a fanzine period and sort of mentions in that particular book her going to Leeds to meet James and then sort of being explained about sort of how to get, you know, various kind of production techniques. So there, there was a huge community aspect to the fanzine writer, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you were talking about um, the period just after punk and uh, that was quite interesting because... Um, the the big band from sort of the post punk period in fanzines was Crass, and this is something you see in all fanzines from sort of about nineteen eighty one. Um, and Crass wouldn't speak to the main mainstream press at all, which is why, unless you were reading fanzines, you you really wouldn't have known much about them. I mean, I I got into music in nineteen eighty one, but I was only ten years old, so I wasn't really getting exposed to crass in the, in the, the <laughs> things I was reading. There was a magazine yeah. called Charles Songwords. I don't know if you remember that, but that was the first thing I ever bought, I think. But then obviously there's smash hits and, uh, you know, crass would never have been in smash hits. No. But when we were speaking to people who were doing fanzines around that time, early 80s, um, you could, and, and looking at other fanzines, they, they, you know, crass were ubiquitous. And I think a whole generation of people were sort of getting turned on to radical left-wing politics by, you know, by the fact that crass were just sort of showing them the way. And uh, because they would only speak to fanzines, they were in everyone's fanzine. Yes, and it was true. all about, yeah, all about community and about, um, and as you say, you know, this was a period of, Thatcher's government, you can see the context was perfect for, you know, if, if I'd been a little bit older and producing a zine at that time, I'd have been into crass, absolutely no doubt about it. And uh, I, I think of that as a, a really good thing. I mean, even though the politics weren't so overt when at the period when I was getting into uh, fanzines, I still credit it with me, you know, getting into being... Uh, politically left wing you know I was really getting e even if it's not overt it's a sort of implicit part of almost every music fan scene I think. Yes well you went through the John Major years of the 90s didn't you but the interesting thing with Crass and Penny I remember doing an interview with him and um, he said that they would have one day a week I think it was Thursday when the Thursdays when they would do interviews and it was just that one day for um, fanzine writers, which I thought was really sweet, actually. He just, they they kept it real, didn't they, down at Dial House in, in Essex. Yeah. So, well, dear old Penny did lead the way on that front and still going strong today, doing collaborations with, um, I think, Youth and also Honey Bean, Bane, who's, um, who's got a release out next uh, next year, apparently. Anyway, yes. So when you put, when why did you then think, right, this is a good time, let's do a book? Because often you have an idea late at night and then you wake up the next morning and go, oh, my God, that's a disaster. But did you did you sort of, yes, what was the idea for doing, doing the book and seeing it through? Well, um, I think I first thought about it when uh, a friend of mine um Jeanette Leach who's done a couple of music books she um she was doing her um 
a second book which is called Fearless. About oh, yes, I, yes, we got the Fearless book. Look at that. Yeah, yeah. there it is. Um, <laughs> about post rock, which is, um, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic book. Anyway, I was at the launch for for that, and because Jeanette used to do a fanzine. And I think I was talking to her and, uh, you know, one or two other people who were at that launch. And I was just starting to think about all these things, you know, what's, uh, what's happened to a lot of other fanzine editors. You know, Jeanette's gone on to write journalism and publish two books. Um, but what happened to, you know, my peers and Gavin's peers from, you know, when we were doing fanzines? What happened to people who did the even, you know, the earlier fanzines? Just got really intrigued about that and uh, started talking talking to Gavin about whether whether there might be a book we could work on there. Yeah, and as soon as Hamish mentioned it, I was like, oh, yeah, because I just thought it was the kind of book that I would really like to read. I'm always fascinated to know what happens to p- people after that thing that they've done, whether it's, you know, bring a record out or whatever it may be. Um, and, yeah, so what led up to the fanzine, you know, their experiences and their and their memories of doing it. And then also, you know, why they stopped and, and what they've been doing since. I think it's all it's all really interesting, that stuff. I love it. Yes. And did you because you've got um twenty people, but nineteen are probably, right. probably probably nineteen are more music and one not. But did you also feel that you needed to do which I think is a good thing, by the way. Did you were you conscious of having more of a gender balance in this rather than just going, "Oh my God, we've just got twenty men." That's not a good one, even though you met Jeanette earlier. Yeah, but but, yeah. but um, I did. Were you sort of conscious of thinking, "Let's just not make it too boyish about indie bands from the eighties and nineties? Yeah, definitely. I think I think the easy and the boring thing to do is just to make it full of men of a certain age, and <laughs> you know, uh, but that wouldn't that wouldn't be a true reflection of of the world of zines and yeah again if thinking about whether it's a book i would like to read if it was just that i think i'd be a bit like oh that's a, you could have tried a bit harder you know yes. to, and, <laughs> and to make it a bit more diverse and more interesting so so as well as trying to get a gender balance we also tried to get a balance in terms of the subjects of the zine so you know we've got a sci-fi zine we've got a couple of football fanzines in there um and then although the majority are music-based. We've also got some that are single artist only, like we've got Pink Moon, the Nick Drake fanzine, and Smith's Indeed, obviously Smith's fanzine, as well as more kind of general ones. And then different kind of different periods of music. So we've got Punk and we've got Riot Girl and and so on. So you're never going to get, you know, a complete cross-section of the world of zines in, in one book. Obviously, that's impossible. But I think we tried as much as possible Um to get that kind of balance and yes yeah. did you did you see a pattern as you were doing these even though they might be different genres and different times did you see any sort of pattern with the person doing it as well as what happens next in their life um nothing i can think of immediately i mean the, the one thing really is just obviously that kind of passion and wanting to communicate your passion and i suppose another bit of another pattern and theme that came out through a lot of the interviews anyway, was about trying to, particularly in the pre-internet days when, when people were doing them in the 70s and 80s, and well, up until the, the 90s really, trying to get a bit of a sense of community and, you know, kind of find a tribe, find find people to uh, they wanted to communicate with and, and be friends with. Um, in Mark Hodkinson's interview, he, 
he was in a band called Untermensch. This was in Rochdale in the sort of late seventies, early eighties at school, and and they started doing a band really essentially to kind of advertise. Uh, sorry, they started doing a fanzine essentially to advertise the band and spread the word about that, but also to find like-minded people in their town that they yes. could kind of hang out with and you know swap news with and, and find out about other music from. So I think that was a, a good general theme. I don't know if there's anything else you can think of, Hamish. Yeah, well, um, no, I mean, I, I think uh, the nice thing about the the interviews is we weren't seeking to sort of have any theories in advance. And actually, when we set out, we didn't even sort of, sort of discuss anything like gender balance or anything like that. And to me, every every story is very unique. And if there is any common ground, it's um it's not common to absolutely everyone it's sort of like i mean the the fact that a lot of them are fairly introspective types and um you know they they do tend to use that publishing as a way to meet people because you know maybe they don't find it as easy to um to sort of meet in person that was probably i don't know that that was probably the case for me yes um but uh no i mean for me every 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 story the more you get into it what I like about the long-form interview is it gets more and more idiosyncratic and you'll just find out about someone's I almost think you know you could do a similar book um about almost any any subject you know you could take 20 um county tennis players or something like that and interview them all and uh, it could make an interesting book there's something I just like about focusing giving giving uh, you know, a long interview to someone. And uh, I think it always sort of, it, it always leaves you thinking, you know, I've, I feel like I've, I've got to know them really, really well there. Yes. You know, it's got an insight into their life. It's almost like a little short story, if you like. So when you set out, you didn't have a list of the people you wanted. Did it, was it the case it slightly got, you know, did you go through a little path of people recommending somebody and then you doing research and thinking, oh, that's an interest that will be an interesting person to have in the in the book? Yeah, it, I mean, it did. Uh, it's a real cliche, but it did grow organically. Um, uh, Gavin um, got started before I, I got started. So Gavin had done about, I don't know, four or five, I think, before I had done any. And it was really when Gavin was... Gavin had done some of his and I was reading Gavin's and just thinking, right, we've definitely got a book here, you know, and uh, I was thinking, taking a lead from Gavin, I don't want to just interview the same sort of people. So where do we diversify from there? You know, we, we were going out to meet everyone face to face. We didn't do any of it on the phone or by email or anything. Yeah. And um we also, you know, we wanted to cover quite a, a large region geographically, so it wasn't too sort of, you know, um, restricted to, to near where Gavin is in Sheffield or near where I am in London. Yeah, because it's um, got, I was just going to say, it's kind of interesting how many people did a fanzine that, you know, I've only just heard about Louise and they like Mickey from Lush. And also you've got uh, William from Cud as well, has also done a fanzine in his kind of mid-80s period as well, which is quite... You know, it's 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 kind of interesting how many people have done these little, had these kind of little moments in their life, which still holds a great sort of affection, you know, decades later, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing how many people have done fanzines, you know, that you might not have known about. Shane McGowan did one of the very early uh, 
punk fanzines. I think it was called Bondage. Um, and um, um, the guy from Chris, Kiss, who is it, Gene Simmons, he did a, a science fiction fanzine back in the 50s. <laughs> which is, um, oh, Michael Moorcock did a, was it a jazz Moorcock scene. Yeah, well, yeah. Michael Moorcock was very involved in the science fiction scene, so he did science fiction zines. But yes, he did uh, a couple of music ones. Uh, yeah, in late 50s, early 60s, that was another thing came out of our, our science fiction chapter. Yes. I mean, it's, it's just kind of, it's been so beautifully put together and so interesting. And I suppose with a lot of the characters, you know, it's one of those things with, you know, a bit, I don't know about research, but, you know, you think, oh, it didn't, you know, they've gone gone on to do other things, haven't they? And you think, oh, you did your fanzine. And I know various people who did there. They were sort of more A5 poetry and punk and anarcho-punk kind of fanzines as well. And it was just amazing that, you know, one particular person who did one, I can't remember what it's called, but it was mostly poetry. But they had an early poem from, I think it was Henry Normal was in it. So there was a lot of these kind of, this is where someone first got their poem published in one of these kind of. Yeah. Yes. I think right. it, was called, oh, it was called Peace News. That was it. It was very. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's just interesting that this is kind of often the first, you know, the stepping stone, isn't it, to uh, whatever they might go into next. But it kind of gave them that big big bit of confidence because did you sort of find that most of the people who did fanzines were, were they quite young when they started it was it was that one of the few patterns that you might have come across um I think as generally yeah I, I think it depends on say the, the football fanzines not necessarily but often for people doing music scenes uh I know Karen Ablaze was still at school when she did hers and uh the last chapter in the book is someone that's doing them today, Arlo, who does pint-sized punk, who started when he was 10. <laughs> so he's already got, I think, 17 under his belt, and he's 12 now. So he started very early. I think that's the youngest uh, that we came across. But Yeah, Mark Hopkinson, yeah. Pete Papides, they were, both, um, they were both at school when they started theirs. Yes. And how old was Sean, um, was it Patterson? She was at school, I think, wasn't she? So she started yeah, first as well? I think. Yeah, 15, 16. Around about that kind of age, Sean, yeah. Yeah, that's just, it's just been fantastic. Was there anybody that you would have loved to have got that you didn't manage to sort of, sort of get for this particular, you know, project? I would have loved to have had, you know, like unlimited time and unlimited amounts of pages because uh, it would have been nice to, I mean, there were lots of them, you know, we, we did, um, Part of part of our brief, if you like, was um, not to cover the same few fanzines that everyone else has covered, but not not to neglect them because we felt like we must have at least one of the real landmark um, fanzines. So there are, well, I'd say there's a couple of the really, really big sellers, which are Snipping Glue and um, Ablaze. To me, those are the two sort of really successful fanzines uh, that we that we covered. Yes. Um, but you know there are there are, I would have liked to have interviewed a lot of the other people from the early punk fanzines. You know, Drayton who did written torn. Um, even I mean, if I could have somehow got to meet Shane McGowan and talk to him about his fanzine, I think that would have been so interesting. Yes, and I was also I was I was endlessly trying to uh, interview Pete Doherty just because I'm a huge fan of uh, Pete Doherty. But he was interesting in that he did what was uh, not 
a music zine, but a football zine when he was uh, 14 years old. He was a mad QPR fan and uh, he did um, five issues of a QPR zine. So I was trying um, to arrange an interview with him somehow, but uh, it never it never happened, unfortunately. But uh, he did finally um, get to see a proof of the book, and he did uh, he did endorse it. So we have his seal of approval. Which I oh, read. that would have been fascinating. I wonder what he thought of Stan Bowles. Who knows? Did you uh, did you find because one or two people have done these kind of very iconic fanzines, and they're and I've, I've sort of contacted them sort of in, in a curious and interesting way, but they've been like, no, and there's no, there's no archive of them. Do you, have you found that a bit frustrating that, you know, when you look at these documents, I suppose when they were doing them, as you said at the beginning, you know, no one thought they were going to be of any interest, but then they become a bit of a historic document. You think, let's yeah. do an exhibition at least and put them in, which would be brilliant, but then at least put them online. Did you find that one or two times that people were a little bit like, no, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it anymore. Uh, I don't think so. My recollection is that everyone was was very much up for it. I think some people are a little more perhaps embarrassed of their their younger writing, you know, because uh, for some people it was you know thirty forty years ago that they'd written these things as a as a young person, and it maybe felt a little bit uh, like the writing was a bit naive or you know not not to the kind of standard that they would do now. But um, no, I, I think, think everyone really feels a sort of mixture of pride and embarrassment, mm. don't they? Because, uh, yeah. you know, it's uh, you feel very ambivalent. I certainly feel very ambivalent looking back at mine. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. that's how I feel. Yes. I think if, it's, if it features your poetry, then you're really slightly... Not sure if you could go back there and read it again, but that's that's just one of those things. Do you find with your kind of work and research on it, did it was the, do fanzines change depending on what country? I mean, did you look at sort of the Americans, you know, fanzine period as well at that time and just compare the the difference between what was happening in America to what was happening in Britain? Yeah, I mean, I was I was reading some American zines at the time, but um, our book for our book we wanted to be keep it just to British fanzines because otherwise, you know, it just wouldn't have been possible to have anything um, very cohesive. And also, yes. you know, the, um, I mean, it's more what we know. I was by far reading far more uh, British fanzines than American ones, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I do have an impression of what American fanzines were like and that they were a bit different from the British ones. There Actually, one of the one of the inspirations for our book is that there were two volumes um, about zines published by an organisation called Research. Oh Quite, yes, yeah, you might you might know they did theirs in the in the nineties. Um, yes, someone called V Vale who um, produced them, and they're they're fantastic books. You can still get them reasonably easily online. Um, but I mean, whereas our our zines, all the ones that I really knew of in the in the eighties and nineties, they were music ones. Uh, it seemed like American ones. They were already doing them on all sorts of things. You know, much more like. Um, uh, I mean, it could be. I I used to get one called the optimistic pessimist, which was just about Pez dispensers, which is, you know, about as arcane a subject as you could possibly find i couldn't imagine anyone doing something like that um 
in Britain. <laughs> no, that's true. And why? Do, what do you or what did what did you feel or gauge from why people stopped doing fanzines? What was the kind of was there a particular reason that they thought that's it? I'm not doing this anymore. I think in some cases it was age, um, and you know once you get. Certainly that was the case for me once I got to kind of 22, 23 and stopped being a student and uh, going into the world of work, then, you know, obviously that's a big time commitment. And I, and I think there was an element of me just thinking, oh, that's kind of a bit, you know, a bit old, a bit childish maybe or, you know, a little bit naive. So, so I stopped and I think other people did the same thing. I think there were a few other interviews where they said, they got to a certain age and just thought, oh, I need to kind of put that into the past now. Yes. But, you know, here I am 30-odd years later still talking about them. But, <laughs> but it is a thankless task, really, I think. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, you get all excited about producing it. You you put so much love and energy and time into it. And um, the response is always so underwhelming. I mean... Maybe this wasn't the case for a few of them, like a blaze and sniffing glue, where they, you know, they they obviously got a response that made it well worthwhile to keep keep doing it. But it was certainly my experience. And another thing that me and Gavin were both both found was that producing the fanzine was, you know, all all we really gave any thought to. The actual process of selling them um, was something we were you know, never thought about in advance and were totally inept at. So I only ever got rid of a tiny, tiny proportion of the amount of uh, fanzines I printed. So obviously that's that's one reason why it got such an <laughs> underwhelming response. Yes, I think yeah, the great world of self-publishing is quite disappointing, isn't it, really? <laughs> The stuff you have under your bed, but then, we, but because I remember now in the eighties, John Peel used to often, you know, who I used to listen to, would read out, you know, like a fanzine, the address, and say, "Oh yeah, I've been looking at this. They've got some good interviews." And then you'd have to sort of contact the person by letter, and then they would have to tell you how much it was. And then you'd have to probably put, you know, a pound or fifty p and a self-addressed envelope all wrapped up and then put it, and then hope weeks later you might get one back. And it was a really slow process, and it was quite exciting. But, yeah, you could probably, as a punter, but probably the person doing it must have felt really tedious, actually. Were you ever tempted to do a fanzine yourself, David? Yes, quite. Because, again, there was that thing of like, oh, you can get free see, uh, records, can't you? And get into gigs oh, yeah, for that free. yeah, another reason I did it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, you know, so there was a sort of element. I did a few and it was it was a little bit for that cynical purpose, actually. It was that <laughs> sense of, you know, it was more interest in getting free stuff than yeah. trying to sell it because you thought, God, selling it is just a nightmare. But you know, the you know, like the record company PR department would love it. You know, so there was that element that you thought, wow, perhaps I should get a PO box now. And um, you know, but eventually you get a bit bored of it all, don't you? So, um, but what's what's happened to the fanzine now in the twenty first century? Yeah, well, um, I mean, there there aren't as many of them, and those that there are, they're of a different sort of character i would say um i mean the old traditional music fanzine um that forms a large part of the ones we cover um there are very i mean the only one i know of is pint-sized punk which is a real old school fanzine in many ways even though it's put together with um you know all the benefits of technology for doing the interviews over zoom things like that 
and uh, and it's printed in you know um, full color, and that's now you know economically viable. But um, the vast majority of them, they seem to they sell either either at zine fairs or on Etsy, um, and I mean. You know there are there are some very very good zine distros as well which we list in our book uh, where you can go to buy you know maybe you want to buy a, a dozen zines all at once and uh, one of them is called Penfight that uh, I've ordered quite a lot of recent zines from just to get an impression yes. of what they're like because uh, sometimes I've seen I've seen weekend events I don't know what I think they might be of a certain I don't know. I don't know what sort of events they are actually that's a bit vague isn't it but i think they've had sort of like i've looked down the list i think they could be gender related or feminist related and said oh we have a fanzine workshop and i thought oh that's hmm. nice so oh, that's that's, right, that's yeah. why that's why i was asking if they've just become popular with a new group of people another group young group of people who are who find it quite interesting after decades of it not being interesting i just wonder if it's had a revival yeah one of one of the people we interview in the book is selena laverne day who um it's been quite a prolific, prolific zine maker um, in Manchester and is still doing them now. Uh, and she's written zines on all kinds of subjects from favourite crisp flavours. And she's done a zine about a sweet shop she used to run, uh, as well as her life as a placebo fan in the 90s. And then also um, some more sort of personal fanzines about um, gender and, um, and race and so on. And she does a lot of those zine workshops as well. So she's kind of drawing on her own experience as a zine editor to you know kind of go on and inspire and and educate other people that are interested so i think there's i think there's more you know there's there's a big sense of community around you know and if you go to zine fairs I, i've been i started going to a few zine fairs in researching the book and finding out a little bit about what was going on and there does seem to be much more of a sense of community amongst those people yeah um i think in the past everyone was spread out and people would send flyers to each other and, and you would read reviews and get to see what was going on. But I think people come together more often now and know each other and through social media and stuff. So yeah, it's changed a lot, but there's, it's definitely still quite a vibrant and lively um, yes. scene around. It's never going to die, is it? So with your book, how can people, we peaked at paper, Did how do you manage to get a copy of it? Is it available from all good bookshops and also online? Well, it is, yes. Um, but what we'd encourage people to do is order it direct from the publisher, which is www.boatwhistle.com, um, because um, it's an independent publisher, and I think it's the best way to support independent publishing is to order it direct from them, because otherwise you're ordering it from Amazon, Waterstones, you're giving half of the cover price to a large corporation. Yes. And I think it's very much in the spirit of fanzines that uh, you should be supporting the independents and not the big corporations. Absolutely. Yes. No, that's good. I will put that out. And, um, well, look, thank you again ever so much. And, and brilliant that you've put this together because obviously this was one of your lockdown projects, I guess, better than a puppy. It yeah, I mean, it actually lockdown. started before... Uh, before lockdown but um covid was something that came right in the middle of uh, our sort of series of interviews and something we had to work around um so it's it, it almost forms a little bit of a motif through through the book actually that uh we often say in the introduction 
what the sort of restrictions we were having to work around at that point were. Yeah, sure. I mean, I had to do I had to do at least one interview with a with a mask on. <laughs> so that must have been hard, actually. Just can't see the facial expression, can you really? So um, yes, but team. I guess you did Teams and Zoom. Did you mention that in the introduction? No, no, we did them all face to face. So I mean, like... often uh, trying to arrange an interview, you'd be sort of you'd have fixed a date, and then suddenly there'd be a lockdown. You'd say, okay, we'll have to leave it for a few months then. Yes. So yeah, you we ended up at all times. Yeah, and <laughs> good, good. You can lie about it now, can't you, and say we broke it, but at the time it seemed so sort of important. But um, so you actually drove around the country meeting up? Drove and, yeah, taking the train, and there were all sorts of things like Sniffing Glue um, is a London fanzine, but Mark Perry's now in Penzance, so I had to go all the way to Penzance. Um, and that was um, working around a COVID lockdown. Yes. And another one was um, one of the one of the fanzine football fanzine editors I wanted to speak to um, was a QPR fanzine editor, and I was sort of thinking, well, that'd be easy for me. I'm in London, so he'll be in Shepherd's Bush. Be a short journey. Turned out he lives in Bolton. It's not good, is it really? How but did we, he end no, up? we went all the way up to Bolton to uh, interview a QPR fanzine editor. Yeah. But it, it, has was all, be... it was all part of the fun of the project. Really. Yes. And that picture of Mark Perry, who's in the, the Longboat Inn, Penzance, is that a big old recorder that you've got next to to his pint of beer? Like we it used is, to have in... Yes, I did it on a, a C90 cassette on a, a battery-powered um, old-fashioned recorder. And um, that was where I did the first few interviews. And then when I was interviewing Mark Taylor of Smith's Indeed, fanzine in, in Bristol. Uh, it just uh, died after about 10 minutes into the interview, the, the recorder died and uh, Mark had to record the rest of it on his own phone. So um, yeah, so from then on, I, uh, I, I, I did have to up update the technology a little bit. There. Yes, I know those moments when you realise the batteries have gone and you're in the in middle of an interview. What do you do? Do you just pretend it's still going? And Yeah, and I was lucky. Very lucky Mark was so uh, accommodating and efficient. <laughs> That's okay. I haven't seen one of those recorders for such a long time. I've been really impressed. I thought, there you go. Anyway, yeah, look. I'm very sad when it died. Yes, I would imagine. Um, yes, your, was it your dad's or mum's? I, I don't know where it came from. It was one of those items that's just always been hanging around the house for about 20 years and, uh, and uh, you know, reliable until until the moment when you need it for an interview in bristol yes not good but look this is brilliant and if you want i can always i'll tell you when it goes out and also i can always send you the link and you could hopefully use it elsewhere because that would be good to put the uh, the word around on the streets brilliant yeah thank you but that's brilliant fantastic well look thank you again for your time and yeah i love these projects they're so good so um yeah well done it's been amazing to see and so educational i didn't realize half these people had done fanzines before um going on to other things so there you go so yes very much, yeah well look have a lovely week and um thanks again for your time okay All take right. care cheers thanks bye-bye bye-bye and that dear listener just in case you didn't know it's the end of the, the end of the interview a massive thank you to gavin hogg and 
Hamish Ironside, talking about their book, We Peaked at Paper, an oral history of British zines that's come out on Boat Whistle Books, so do check it out. Available from all good bookshops and also online, probably. I'll give you the uh, link um, in the notes to uh, the place that you could order it. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.